0: You, but I am. Uh, I'm both excited and a little nervous about this series that we find ourselves in. Um, we, we, for those of you who don't know, a week ago uh, jumped into a series entitled "Advancing in Joy." You see those three words up on the screen behind me, even as we speak. A study of the Book of Philippians. We're talking about four brief chapters. We're talking about just a little over a hundred verses. Um, in most of your Bibles, just a couple of pages, and then you're on to the next book of the Bible. And yet, it's filled with a treasure trove of truth. From the sovereignty of God and salvation, to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, the indispensability of unity and generosity in the Christian life, the br- blueprint for how to suffer well, the imputed righteousness of Jesus that's yours and mine by faith, the triathlon that is the Christian life, This idea of an otherworldly citizenship in heaven, the doctrine of the resurrection of our physical bodies, the significance of right thinking in the battle for our souls, the secret to contentment in all circumstances. These are just a few of the things that that we're going to talk about as a church for the next couple months. I mentioned this last week. In light of all of that, the overarching theme, the thread that holds all of this together is this idea of gospel-centered joy. That The words joy and gospel are more prevalent in this book of the Bible than any other. In fact, the, the book of Philippians has come to be known in evangelical circles as the joy book. But we're not talking about joy in and of itself, but rather a joy fueled and fanned into flame by the power of the gospel. I said this last week and I'll say it again. As a result of this series... My hope is that the gospel becomes more beautiful and indispensable to you, to me as well. My hope is that your experience uh, is one of joy that can only be found in seeing and savoring Jesus, that we begin to understand what that kind of joy really means and looks like. My hope is that you get a glimpse of of what a shared passion for the gospel looks like and that it compels you to intertwine your life with others in this church for the sake of the gospel. And, And lastly, and we'll talk about this this morning, my hope is that you shine like stars, even in your suffering, knowing that God uses it all for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, let me, let me make sense of what I mean when I say that um, I'm, I'm both excited and a little, little nervous about this book of the Bible. I was sitting with the question. It was a, one of the questions posed to our community groups this week. The question of what what most excites you? What are you most looking forward to as it pertains to our study of this particular book of the Bible? And my answer to that question is, I hope that by God's grace, a couple of months from now, as we're wrapping up our study of the book of Philippians, that, that these declarative statements for me to live is Christ and to die is gain or uh, what what I once considered gain I now count as loss. I consider it rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. These kind of statements that come out of the Apostle Paul's mouth, my hope and my excitement about this series is that those statements would become more real for me, that they would root themselves deeper in, in the deep recesses of my being. Now, Here's where I'm a little unnerved. I know me fairly well. I'm I'm getting to know me a little better over the course of of my life. And I know that it is very possible with the fickle heart that I bring to the table that two months from now we could be wrapping up this series. And to live as Christ and to die as gain could uh, be the same uh, phrase in terms of its meaning to me that it was when we began this series that, that I, I could become a little bit more theologically aware of what that phrase means, could unearth a theology of gain and suffering, and yet fail to grip that with my own heart. And, and, and so my prayer for us is that we would acknowledge that We are all slow, grueling works of sanctification, that that is a progressive thing. And, And it is very possible if we're not seeking the Holy Spirit's work in our lives that that could very, very well happen for all of us. We deeply need a miracle to take place. I need the same miraculous Holy Spirit who awakened my heart to the beauty of the gospel the first time, to awaken my heart to the beauty of these propositions of truth that we're going to engage for the next two months, and and to to root those propositions of truth deeper in in my heart, deeper in my mind as well. And and so I want to pray for us before we dive into this morning's passage that the Holy Spirit would do that, because I I don't think that the Apostle Paul is meant to be seen as the radical, and, and we're all too... Put him on a pedestal and, and, and look at him in that way, but rather we're meant to embrace this as a group of radicals who go and live this thing out. Imagine, you wanna talk about vision casting? Imagine what it would look like if all of us in this room began to more and more breathe the air that the Apostle Paul is breathing as it pertains to the gospel. And so I wanna pray for, for us in that respect as, as we dive into this morning's passage. Let's pray. God, there are some glorious declarations found in this particular book of the Bible. The Apostle Paul over and over and over again declares things that that cause me at first glance to want to declare him to be an absolute radical. Uh, The the varsity version of Christianity. And, And yet this book of the Bible is meant for the edification of all of us who declare ourselves to be followers of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we need you. I cannot bring these truths off the page in such a way that, that they find themselves more deeply rooted in the hearts of your people. Only you can do that. And I pray that, that these statements that oftentimes sound like they're for someone else would become ours to own. That it would be about more than just theological assent, but rather truth that it finds its way into the deepest recesses of our being and changes us. May this morning not be about gospel information alone, but information that leads to gospel transformation in our lives. Now we love you. We lift these things up by the power of your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. If you're one of those people whose circumstances oftentimes dictates your joy, this message is for you. If you find yourself continually worrying about what people think about you, this message is for you. If you have any desire whatsoever to leverage your life for the cause of Jesus Christ, this message is for you. And last but certainly not least, if you bring pain into this room this morning, hurt into this room this morning, suffering, tragedy, hardship, and you wonder where God is in the midst of all that, this message is unquestionably for you. We're going to talk a great deal about joy and what joy is and what joy isn't. We're going to unpack the various nuances of theology as we work our way through this book of the Bible. But this morning, we get to hear from a man in shackles. And I think it's critical that we engage what he has to say because I think it just might turn our thinking upside down on its head. And not in a bad way, but in a way that offers us real hope, real joy, real peace. Not this fabricated, culturally Christian version of those things. It just might turn our thinking upside down on its head in a way that that could create a glorious advancement of the gospel in South Metro Atlanta if we'll embrace it. That shackled man, of course, is the Apostle Paul. And here's what he has to say beginning in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay, coming right out of the introduction of this letter. Last week we talked about who the Apostle Paul is what he came from, a little bit of his background, what what the city of Philippi is all about uh, in terms of the history of the city, how a church was birthed on the scene in that particular city. All of a sudden, coming out of that intro, Paul doesn't start off in the shallow end of the kiddie pool, does he? He jumps right into the deep end of the systematic theology book, the chapter on suffering. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me We know, based on the very next verse, that what has happened to the Apostle Paul is imprisonment with the possibility of impending death. You you have to imagine, going back to last week, we talked about the fact that that Paul has a deep affection for his friends in the city of Philippi. you got to imagine that Paul's friends in that city want to know how how their brother in Christ is doing. We love you, Paul. Our hearts are deeply knit together with yours. We, we bleed for the same cause. We have a shared joy because Jesus is our shared passion. You'd you think that the apostle Paul might be compelled to describe his prison cell, maybe tell his friends how the guards are treating him, maybe describe the tightness of the shackles, but but that's not at all what Paul does, is it? What Paul says is not, here's how I'm doing, guys, but rather, here's how the gospel's doing. The gospel's doing quite well, friends. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here's a tweetable phrase. You cannot help but talk about that which you love. Let me say that again. You cannot help but talk about that which you love. If you love your kids you talk about your kids. If you love money, you talk about money. If you love yourself, you talk about yourself. If you love the gospel, you talk about the gospel. Paul loves the gospel, and thus he jumps right into the gospel implications of his imprisonment. There's something fundamentally crucial that the Apostle Paul is communicating about the beauty of the gospel in verses 12 through 14. Namely, that it's the gospel that frees us from the empty chase of self-exaltation. Let me unpack that. From, From the dawn of human existence, man has been on an exhausting mission to try to become the main attraction. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were deceived by the lie that they could displace God, that they could determine truth for themselves, that they could live a life of self-determination. Now, maybe you're a better person than me, but I'm pretty confident that I would have taken a, a bite of that same forbidden fruit that my first parents ate of. So easy for me to get caught up in the building of my own kingdom. In this idea of of trying to make a name for myself, of trying to obtain some sort of glory, some sort of limelight. The culture in which we live doesn't make it any easier, does it? Every marketing campaign that you encounter, one commercial after another says, it's all about you. You're the point. You're the king. You're the queen of your own kingdom. You deserve this. You're entitled to this. This will make you more glorious. Out of fear of decline, even churches have caved and said, it's all about you, so come consume here. Just to be clear, I'd rather this church no longer exist than that to ever become our motto. Our motto is not, nor by God's grace will it ever be, it's all about you, come consume here. Rather, our motto is, it's all about Jesus, so come contribute here. Come and be spent for his glory. Most people on planet Earth, I've said this before, including many in the church, desperately need a Copernican revolution. 1543, Nicholas Copernicus presented an idea that revolutionized man's understanding of the entire universe. Before Copernicus, it was believed that planet Earth was at the center of the the solar system, the stationary, non-moving center of everything. It was believed that the sun and all the other planets revolved around planet Earth, which makes sense, right? We're the planet that has life on it. We must be the center of the whole deal, Copernicus argued that, no, it's the sun that's actually at the center of the solar system. And planet Earth, along with all the other planets, revolve around the sun. Most people on planet Earth, including a lot of professing Christians, including myself when my eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, desperately need a Copernican revolution. We get caught up in thinking that that the world revolves around us, that we're the sun, we're the center, we're the main attraction that human history has been waiting for us to make our grand entrance onto the stage of this divine, redemptive, historical drama. And we're here, so this must be the main chapter. Let me say this, and I think it's critical that we wrap our minds around this and our hearts. Thinking like that will kill you. It might be a quick death. It might be a slow, grueling death. Either way, you will not and cannot experience abundant life in the pursuit of self exaltation, it's not what you were designed for. You'll always feel like there's something missing. I wanna show you a video clip, and I'm gonna be straight with you. I'm gonna be up front. It's a video clip of an interview with Tom Brady. Some of you are grieving, I know. It's still soon, right? I've, I've been working my way through the five steps of grief. Monday for me was denial, I, I was replaying the game in my mind with a different outcome. Tuesday was bargaining. On my prayer walk with the Lord, it was, hey, if I, maybe if I you know, do this or that, maybe we can go back and reorchestrate that whole thing. And then Wednesday was just anger, right? I've, I've been there. I get it. I'm, I'm not looking to pour salt in the wound. I, I just, with, with Tom Brady being at the center of everything in terms of the media and the sports world this week, I, I want you to, to see what this man had to say, this is a few years back. Some of you have seen this interview with 60 Minutes. It was after he obtained his third Super Bowl ring, uh, was declared one of uh, People Magazine's most beautiful people, as was his wife, and and was in the midst of a 10-year, $60 million contract to be the quarterback of the New England Patriots. This is the interview with Brady. Can you go out to restaurants?
1: If I have the energy to deal with, you know a happy face on. Sometimes I don't feel like that. Now, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's, you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not the other stuff. So, in a lot of ways, I've created this myself. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. <laughs> you're right, you're right, it has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage though. The most eligible bachelor in America. Well, it's very flattering. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think I sleep any better at night. Being that. No way. You mean, like, alone or not alone? (laughs) What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and... and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew.
0: The Bible says God has put eternity into the hearts of men. We weren't designed to be the main attraction, which is why when you seek that for your life, you just continuously claw and grasp, but you never get there. From the beginning, you and I, we're we're not designed to be the sun. We were designed to be the moon, to reflect the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In the same way that the moon has been positioned to perfectly reflect the sun's light, so you and I have been perfectly positioned to reflect the glory of God. That God has you at this moment in human history, 2017, in this place on planet Earth, South Metro Atlanta. And the reason he has you right here, right now, is to be the moon. To reflect the glory of the sun, Jesus Christ, in a very unique way that no one else around you in this room can do. When you get that, when you embrace that, it changes everything. When you get that it's not about you and that that's good news, everything changes. You find that though you may battle it from time to time, you've ultimately been freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation. You're free from fighting and clawing to try to be the center. And at the same time, you, you begin to understand that you have incredible purpose in life, which is that your life exists to help point people to the main attraction and to make much of the main attraction. Going back to last week, If you found out this whole thing was about you, you might like it for a fleeting moment. But ultimately, it'd be the biggest letdown ever. Again, no one goes to the beach and looks out on that vast stretch of ocean and says, wow, aren't I remarkable? No one goes to the Grand Canyon and looks out on that giant crater and says, I'm something else. That's not how the world works. We love to be surrounded by majesty, not because it makes us feel big, but because it overwhelms us. It makes us feel quite small. Why do we love that? Because we were created to bask in something bigger than us. We we were created to be overwhelmed with and point others to God's glory and splendor and enjoy him in the midst of all of it. The Apostle Paul in this passage knows something of the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He knows something of true freedom from bondage to his fragile human ego. Only the gospel Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can free you from a life of fighting and clawing after self-glory and kingdom building. And at the same time, give you meaning, give you purpose like you've never known. The, The more we soak in the gospel, you might say, the more we will become glory reflectors rather than glory thieves. And that, that's the truly free life. Paul... A man in Roman shackles, think about this, Paul, a man in Roman shackles just might be freer than some of us in this room this morning. Maybe the greatest thing you could do right now as you sit in this place for the sake of your own freedom, for the sake of your own joy, is to let go, to, to put an end to the empty chase for self-exaltation, for self-glory, to stop trying to be what you were never created to be in the first place. We weren't made for glory thieving. Paul says very little about how he's doing. Isn't it strange? We look at Paul, we go, what a great man of God. But it's not because he talks about himself. He doesn't say, look at me. Look at all of my glory. Look at how I'm living this thing out. We we look at the greatness of Paul because Paul points to the greatness of Christ. Very little about how he's doing does he include in the details but he does say much about how the gospel's doing. He says the gospel is advancing, my friends. And this advancement of the gospel is happening as a result of my imprisonment. Again, what has happened to me, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. There's something else fundamental that, that Paul is communicating about the beauty of the gospel in these verses. Verses 12 through 14. What Paul is saying is that for the Christian Suffering actually has a purpose. Those dark nights of the soul that you experience from time to time, they actually have a purpose. Paul's suffering is, to, is serving to advance the gospel, verse 12. Paul's suffering is for Christ, verse 13. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're not, maybe you are, it's not helpful to hear others in your moments of hurt, in your moments of pain, in those dark nights of the soul. It's not helpful sometimes to hear people say, you know, what you're going through isn't for nothing. It's for Jesus. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely it's true. But but sometimes we need something a little more grounded, which is why I really appreciate what the Apostle Paul does here. It, it, it seems to communicate a shepherd's heart of sorts because he, he doesn't leave us with some generalized Christian feel-good statement. He actually tells us specifically how suffering the Christian serves to advance the gospel. He says that happens in a couple of ways. Number one, uh, when you suffer well for the sake of the gospel, the evangelization of non-Christians will, will happen as a result of that. He says, again, I want you to know what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The Imperial Guard, roughly 9,000 Roman soldiers, believed in the sufficiency of Caesar. All of a sudden, the Apostle Paul finds himself in Roman shackles. And in the midst of his suffering, he declares the sufficiency not of Caesar, but of who? Jesus. You want to know what will mess with a non-Christian's head? Declaring in the midst of your darkest moments that Jesus is enough. That'll train wreck someone's worldview. And, and I'm not talking about some, some shallow, trivial hiding of your hurt, hiding of your anger, hiding of your tears. I'm talking about letting people see all of the ugly with a clinging to Jesus in the midst of that ugly. That's very different. That'll give a non-Christian something to chew on. What, what the Apostle Paul is declaring is that we not waste our suffering, that we not waste those dark moments in our lives. Rather, that we use them to crush the devil of hell by declaring the sufficiency of Christ in the midst of it all. Imagine one day seeing Jesus face to face and hearing him tell you of all the people who came to faith because of your declaration of the sufficiency of Christ in those seasons of darkness that appeared to be absolutely irredeemable. All right, that's, that's one way that the gospel advances, through the evangelization of non-Christians. The second way, verse 14, is through the emboldening of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, and most of the brothers, the sisters, those who love Jesus, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, not only is my suffering serving to advance the gospel through those who don't know Jesus coming to love and follow Jesus, my suffering is serving to advance the gospel through the empowering of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I've got friends here in Rome who find themselves more emboldened, not only in their belief in the gospel, but their declaration of the gospel as a result of my suffering. And again, notice that the confidence is not in the apostle Paul, the sufferer. Rather, the confidence is in the one who sustains the sufferer, namely Christ Jesus. Let me say this. I think this is critical for some in this room to hear. Seeing the sustaining grace of God in many of your lives, particularly in the midst of brokenness and pain, actually emboldens me personally. Not only to believe the gospel, but to declare it more boldly. It really does. When, when I look out on the landscape of the church, and I see people going through things that, that are gruelingly ugly at times, and, and, and I see the tears, they're real. I see the anger, I see the hurt, I see the frustration, I see the tension of why do we have to live in a world that's like this? I see all of that, and yet I still see a clinging to Jesus and declaring him to be good, I can't begin to tell you what kind of impact that has on me personally as one of your pastors. Because all of a sudden that theology becomes real in a human life, in a family. And I see that Jesus is sufficient. He really is. He's sufficient on the ground, in the trenches, in the moment. And that makes me want to declare it all the more every time we gather. And what Paul says is that doesn't just happen for preachers but for the church at large. Some of you know this. Some of you, as you've intertwined your life with others in this church, you've seen them go through things that that just, you question at the end of the day, how, how are they still clinging to Jesus? How How is he still good? How is that still the declaration that's coming forth from their mouths that, that that's not just some trivial statement. They actually mean it. They believe it. And that emboldens us as a body to to fight for the gospel all the more. And so know that if you're trusting Jesus in your suffering, you're helping the message to go forth for Cross Point Peachtree City in this community, not just through me, but through others that you're surrounded by. Notice that Paul's not out to trivialize suffering. It's never helpful to do that. But he is out to make crystal clear that moments of suffering are opportunities to allow Christ to shine in the midst of those dark moments. The the strangest thing, I don't know what you would say the strangest thing about this passage. Mine's a little weird. The strangest thing to me about this passage is that it's not the Philippians who are saying these things to Paul. You notice that? It's Paul, the sufferer, saying these things to the Philippians. Do, Do those of you who are going through painful things in life right now need to be surrounded by the church to rally around you? Yes and amen, unquestionably. But the church, hear me, also needs to hear you when you're walking through the fire and the flame declaring that Jesus is still enough. We need to hear that. Those of us who aren't in the darkest nights of our soul. What a testimony to the sufficiency of Jesus. Isn't it interesting how when we go through difficulties, everything seems to kind of shrink in our minds. All of a sudden, you know, the world gets a little smaller. It's about our story alone and what's going on, and we're trying to make sense of it all. Yet, what we actually need, according to the Apostle Paul in this passage, in those moments, is not to have our vision shrink, but rather to have it expanded. It's when we're able to see that our hurt, that our pain, that the dark things that we go through have kingdom implications that we're actually able to begin to make some sense of them and to walk through them. God somehow has a Christ-exalting purpose in everything that we go through, both the good and the awful. And what Paul is saying is don't waste that. Don't waste the dark nights of the soul. Don't waste your suffering. Leverage it to show people the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And trust me, when I, don't, uh, when I say that I don't expect this to be easy to embrace if you're really going through something difficult right now. Um, I actually thought this week, uh, what, what would I consider one of the darkest moments of my life, and and, and what would that version of me have to say about this sermon? Um, the answer to that question is the 19-year-old version of me. Uh, many of you know this. Three days before my 19th birthday, I fell asleep at the wheel, shattered my ankle joint, broke my jaw in three places, fractured my hip, uh, broke my leg. I was told that I would not walk again by a couple of different doctors. And I had to sit with that possibility uh, in, in a bed, uh, hoping, praying that that was not true, but wrestling with the implications of that if it was true. And I thought to myself, what, what would the 19-year-old version of Jamie say about a message like this, about a sermon like this, about a passage like this? And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not sure that he would have had a good response I think he might have said, if God will respond the way I want him to, then I'm all about the advancement of his gospel. But there are contingencies to that for me. I think there would be a part of me that would push back and go, how dare you say that what I'm going through is for the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ in such a trivial, trite way. It begins to make a little more sense, that declaration, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Only God can sustain a person in a season of hurt, a season of pain, a season of grief, and help them to embrace the advancement of the gospel in the midst of it. That's what I mean when I say the Holy Spirit has to perform the same kind of miraculous work that, that He did when He awakened our hearts to the beauty of the gospel the first time. We desperately need the Spirit of God in order to embrace any of this that we're talking about this morning. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you can readily say, I don't know how I walked through that, whatever it was, fill in the blank with whatever that is. Still continuing to make much of Jesus and declare him to be sufficient and good. Some of you have been through those seasons in life and you go only by God's sustaining grace and his spirit at work within me. Let me read that Kent Hughes quote from last week one more time in light of what we're talking about this morning. He says this, as I reflect on my 50 plus years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. I am not confident in my history. I am not confident in my reverend persona. I am not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. I don't know who would describe themselves in this room this morning as being in one of those dark seasons of the soul. But let me say this. If you feel like your grip on God is slipping, know that his grip on you never slips. Never. As we move into verse 15, now Paul takes this idea of boldness in declaring the gospel to introduce some challenges that he's actually facing in Rome. And at first glance, you, you might wonder, what in the world do these verses have to do with us? But I think there are some massive implications in these final verses of this morning's passage. Beginning in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. According to the Apostle Paul, there are some in the city of Rome professing Christians who have made it their aim to afflict him. They're using the gospel to to advance their own selfish ambitions, preaching the gospel from envy, from rivalry. There were some in Rome who who were, in fact, genuine, preaching the gospel uh, out of love and goodwill, those who understood the real reason why the apostle Paul was in chains, but there were others who were out to hurt Paul. We, we have no idea of what's going on here. It, it could have been that there were some who were trying to divert some of Paul's financial support in their direction. You know, why waste your money on a man stuck in prison when you could send it to a free man who can tell everybody about Jesus? Or, you know, maybe it was the persuasion that Paul's imprisonment was God's way of taking Paul out of the game. You know, maybe it was, you know, the fact that he's in prison must say something about his character. Or we all know he's not the most eloquent speaker. Maybe he just doesn't have the gift mix for this whole thing. We have no idea. What we do know is that everyone, uh, not everyone who champions Jesus does so with pure motives. You have these professing Christians declaring a gospel of grace absent of expressions of grace. There there are a lot of people who, who talk about a gospel that they don't really, at the end of the day, believe for themselves. There are a lot of people who talk about a gospel that has no implications on their relationships with other people. That's dangerous. That's pretense, verse 18. That's putting on a show. That word pretense in verse 18, same word Jesus uses in the gospels when he says, beware of the scribes. Those guys, they pray long prayers, but they do it for show. They walk around in their robes, their Christian garb. They love the greetings that come every time they enter the marketplace. Watch out for those guys. It's all about being perceived in a certain way. It has nothing to do with actually having a heart changed by the power of the gospel. It's rampant in our context. Dressing the part from the the customary suit and tie on the one hand to the the more acceptable skinny jeans and church planting circles and everything in between. Carrying around the proper gear, right translation of the Bible, got it. Moleskin Journal, got it. Latest book written by some old dead theologian, got it. Throwing around the appropriate lingo, which is different depending on which circle you, you run in. If you're part of this denomination, you need to learn these words so you fit in. If you're part of... This church planting network, you need to learn these phrases. None of those things are bad things, are they? We're talking about clothing and Bibles and journals and language. The problem is when any or all of those things function as props in a game of pretend with God and others. One, one thing I can say with great confidence this morning make no mistake, the Apostle Paul was not about to have his head chopped off for pretense. There's danger in living in a subculture in which it's actually beneficial to be a part of the church. Whether it's you know, moving to an area and needing to build a customer base, and so I can hand out my business cards on a Sunday morning, or um, building a reputation as being a credible person. Well, he goes to church. He must be a, a decent human being. must not be the riffraff of society, at least. Or maybe to get your kids into the local Christian private school, which requires that you list a church that you're a part of. This is not the first time in church history that the benefits of, of being part of a church societally has blurred the lines between truth and pretense, between real love for Jesus and play acting. Perhaps the appropriate response for some of us this morning is to just put down the mask. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus died for pretenders just as much as anybody else. You know that, Right? His grace is big enough for the person behind that mask. Now, here's what I love about the Apostle Paul. His response, this man's crazy, by the way. It doesn't ultimately matter what people think about me. It ultimately matters what people think about Jesus. And if people come to know Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel by people who don't really believe the gospel that they're proclaiming, I can rejoice in that. What?! That's crazy! Who talks like that? I found myself having several conversations with the Apostle Paul, just so you know, over the last couple weeks. He and I, we've had some some real moments of contention with each other. You wanna know who talks like that? One who actually knows something of the freedom of self forgetfulness, one who actually knows something of the true freedom from bondage to the fragile human ego. One who really does believe that Jesus is the main attraction. Paul's ultimate aim is the advancement of the gospel through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is able to rejoice knowing that the gospel is indeed advancing as Jesus is indeed being proclaimed. I love the irony of this morning's passage. I don't know about you. It's almost as glorious as the irony of the apostle Paul Uh, a former church persecutor becoming a church planter. The irony of this morning's passage is this. What appears to be a silencing of the gospel through the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul is actually the advancement of the gospel. That though Paul is shackled, the gospel is not. Not only is the gospel not shackled, not confined, but the gospel is actually expanding. It's actually going forth. Not even envy. Rivalry, selfish ambition, insincerity, or pretense can stop the gospel from advancing. That's encouraging. But isn't that how God works? What appears to be certain defeat is actually certain victory with God. That's precisely what we see at the cross of Jesus Christ, is it not? The devil thought he had won. He thought he had the final word. Isn't it ironic that death began to die when Jesus died? We see the death of death in the death of Christ. Yes, our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. But three days later, he rose victoriously from the dead, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. Just like we see in this morning's passage, what appeared to be certain death was in fact certain victory. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. He brings about the greatest good oftentimes out of the darkest darkness. As we close this morning, hear me. If you're not a Christian, that's my prayer for you. My prayer is that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would shine a light into your darkness. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, Paul says. And would awaken your heart to the beauty of the person and work of Jesus. That he lived the life you could never live. He died the death that you deserve to die a sinner's death so that you might have life, so that you might experience true joy, so that your suffering might have purpose, so that you could be a part of something bigger than you, so that you could let go of that empty chase for self-exaltation, so that you could let go of the fragile ego and know something of what it means to not have to be the center and for that to be okay. My prayer for those of you who bring hurt into this room this morning, pain, real hardship is this. I pray that you wouldn't waste the opportunity that you have to shine like a star. Probably hard to see it in the midst of what you're going through, the bigger picture. You have a real opportunity to radiate the light of Jesus Christ in the midst of the darkness that you're going through by declaring Jesus really is.